you know, retailers that make it clear at checkout that like, you know, wait an extra day and you'll save a plane flight, <laughs> you know, over time yeah. or something like that. Uh, I, I would like to see even more retailers doing that because I don't think um, some consumers are, are onto it, but I don't think most consumers know that shipping slower is probably the most impactful thing uh, you could do as a consumer. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Clean Techies podcast, where we interview climate tech founders and VCs to discuss all things building and investing to solve the biggest challenge of our generation, climate change. This is episode 87 of the show. I'm your host, Silas Maynard, and thank you for joining us on today's episode. If you are a returning listener, we are asking for your help in two ways today, very specifically. One, we ask that you please, if you have not already, subscribe and go follow us on YouTube as well. As you know, a lot of effort is put into this show. Uh, Well, maybe you don't know, but if you are a podcaster, you probably know how much effort goes into producing a show. So we really appreciate your support on the listener side. Second thing, if uh, you do, again, a returning listener, we'd like you to send this episode to two people that you know. Very specifically, one person that you think will like this content, somebody who probably agrees with you, maybe you chat with them about the space, often and then one person who you think might disagree with this content we always like to see and kind of like poke the bear a little bit see what they think and maybe maybe someday who knows maybe it'll change their mind so this would really help us spread the show uh spread the word of the show so please help us in that way with subscribing and sharing and then of course if you're returning and you haven't already please leave us a review on apple podcasts especially it's very very helpful for our continued growth and before we get into the episode details any notes for uh, a note for founders listening if you're looking to raise capital or looking for particular partnerships and you're a founder in space, reach out and I'm always glad to help in any way that I can by making those introductions. I do it pretty regularly, so feel free to reach out. And a big thanks to NextWave Partners for sponsoring this show. NextWave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, and ESG spaces globally. So if your team is growing or you're looking to make a career change, reach out to NextWave at next-wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page. All right, so let's get into the episode details. If you are a bit of a shipping nerd like me, this is going to be a great episode for you. Um, we are joined by James Malley, the co-founder of Pacurate, P-A-C-C-U-R-A-T-E, where they are helping product shippers use smaller boxes, so less air is shipped essentially, resulting in fewer trucks to get the same products to your destination. So this is a juggernaut of a business as they are able to service a ginormous uh, a number of companies and, and sizes of companies with a very light staff. And it all came out to just being um, experts in solving annoying problems in the shipping space, right? That's how they got started ultimately. Uh, In this conversation, we talk about um, the shipping industry as a whole, including packaging materials and incentives. I thought that was a pretty, pretty interesting angle that we talked about, as well as how the government is bringing regulation surrounding scope three emissions coming to a store or a country near you and um, how they built their company as well. That was really fun part of the show, of course, to kind of hear their journey and talk about some of the challenges. So really interesting episode. I hope you're into shipping and things of that nature. It may be a boring topic to some people, but I really, I think, you know, if you listen to it from the perspective of trying to reduce the carbon emissions and the impacts, it is very, very exciting if you put it that way, even if you don't like shipping. So if you're at all interested in shipping products, it should be a great episode for you. If not, maybe skip to the second half where he talks about building the company. Um, That'll at least be helpful for any founders listening. So without any further delay, let's get into it. All right. Welcome to the show, James. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Super, super excited to have you on. This is a pretty interesting and exciting conversation for me. Uh, I think I I put it in my show notes here to to mention. For those who don't know, I I had a a company called Chemate a while ago. It's just like a really small side project I worked on. And I got really, at one point, I got really nerdy about the shipping costs and like minimizing things. I was really, really into it. So this is a pretty interesting conversation, but in the lens of sustainability. So I guess, why don't we, why don't we start from the beginning and just tell us a little bit about yourself and a kind of a quick intro of the key, the key highlights. Sure. Um, So my name's James Malley. Um, Today, I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Pacurate. Um, We provide solutions that help companies like Che Mate figure out how to pack uh, shipments more efficiently. And uh, 
you know, do analysis to make sure their box sizes are right for their operation. Um, before that, uh, you know, kind of years of freelancing and logistics tech um, before we decided to build something that we owned. Interesting. So is it also, is it mostly just from the actual shipper's perspective or is it also from the people packing the vans and moving that? Is it, is it more so, more so focused on the actual packaging of the product? Yeah. So we, we support, you know, LTL and TL so we can help with, you know, pallet loads and truck loads and stuff, but our kind of, you know, method that we invented actually drives the most value at the parcel level. Um, and it's definitely the parcel level, like each package optimizing each shipment is what we're most fascinated by um, because kind of any sort of tweak you do at that level really bubbles up through the whole supply chain. So that's kind of where we focus. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I have I have, an, I have a question that we might ask about later, but can we talk more broadly about packaging as a whole? Could you maybe speak about kind of what's the approximate waste per package currently, if you have any data points on this and um, you know when space is wasted, what are the negative byproducts of that? Yeah, I mean, the the funny thing about packing these boxes, so in a fulfillment center, you have, you know, your shelves full of stuff and then orders get dropped in. And then um, some people at the pack stations have these boxes that they choose from to box up your stuff so they can put it on a truck. Um, and we found that uh, a couple of things, I mean, more broadly, even people that do this, you know, as their job, um, they're usually under pressure to do it as quickly as possible. But even if they weren't, uh, humans are just kind of inherently bad at looking at three-dimensional space and kind of understanding uh, what they're looking at. Um, and uh, we are too, uh, you know, because we look at packing uh, solutions all day long and totally, you know, misjudge uh, the percentage fill. Um, but what we find is when we go in to uh, a shipper like Crate and Barrel, um, we'll find around a square foot of cardboard minimum per carton that we can save just by having an algorithm figure it out instead of a human. Um, and anywhere between 10 and 20% of the cubic volume of that uh, package on average. Um, in terms of um, the sustainability stats, it's a lot easier to calculate for the material that gets um, for every ton of cardboard uh, manufactured, it creates three tons of CO2 equivalent. Um, it's a little bit more complicated on the supply chain side. We do know that if you can reduce your uh, the average size of your packages, you're going to use, uh, you know, by 14% or something, you're going to use the same exact uh, percent less uh, trucks. So 14% fewer, uh, or sorry, smaller packages on average, 14% fewer trucks over time. Interesting. So how did you go from kind of being in this logistics space to specifically getting into the sustainability aspect of it? Um, We kind of, uh, I would say, first of all, our team is like extremely passionate about the sustainability side of what we do. It's most of what we talk about internally. Um, But my co-founder, Pat, who's our CTO and who really architected uh, most of our tech or all of our tech really, Um, we kind of backed up into the sustainability benefits. We kind of started working on the problem because we had had all these clients from our freelance days. And it was around the same time that FedEx and UPS started penalizing poor packing more than they had been. Um, And so some of these shippers were like, you know, Pat, James, what do we do? Like, there's not really a good solution for getting this under control. Um, It wasn't really until we got big customers that we were seeing the numbers of, well, wait a second. At scale, this customer is going to save, you know, a hundred acres of cardboard uh, in their, you know, first six months or whatever. Um, so I, I think that we had a, a hunch there was a st- sustainability benefit, but we didn't really become gung ho about solving the problem and the problem itself until we started to see those actual numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. What 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 time was this roughly? This this that this came about. Oh man, I think we started like noodling on the problem in like 2016. Um, we didn't really start taking it seriously until 2018. And then, um, you know, our customer base kind of started to blow up at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so there was a mm. bit of a progression there. Yeah, it's interesting, I think, to to look into these things from when they when they played out in time, obviously, with the 
the hype cycles of ESG and sustainability as they kind of come and come and go and seem to be more sticky as they continue to to go along. Um, I'm kind of curious to know a little bit about before we kind of get into the operating of the company. What could you talk a little bit about the actual materials being used in shipping? Is there a lot of innovation you're seeing there, or is it pretty standard? Maybe just help fill people in who are unfamiliar um, with the space as a whole. Sure. Um, there's nothing really on the horizon that is going to replace uh, that cardboard box that shows up on your on your doorstep. At least not that I've seen. Um, there's a lot of you know interesting stuff being done with the mailers, which are great to kind of introduce into the pack station to save as much space as possible. Um, there's a little bit of a, a battle going on right now between plastic mailers and paper mailers um, because you know plastic not great, um, uh, but it can be cheaper um, in in many ways. So. Um, there's a little bit of back and forth there. I think some of the most exciting stuff is actually happening with fill material, um, particularly for cold chain. You've got a lot of like compostable materials uh, going in. And the only thing that's really you know stopping that or stopping that from instantly taking over is the cost. So we should see, you know, over the next few years, as those costs continue to kind of come down or at least don't rise as fast as some of the other commodity, you know, commodity fill materials out there. We should see a lot greener stuff. I mean, you know, it used to be we used to see um, styrofoam packing peanuts exploding out of your box when you order something, but uh, thankfully we don't see that as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it because obviously, I mean, for those unfamiliar with the packing space, you can't just use any material, right? You you want to keep it light because usually, if I'm not mistaken, you're usually price it based off of weight, correct? For most shipping things? Yeah. So weight is like the primary uh, driver of cost. However, that's that's the thing that really changed and, and caused us to get involved in the problem is that FedEx and UPS and the other carriers, you know, realized, well, wait a second, we've got truckloads of mostly empty boxes here. We're just charging them based on weight. Um, so rather than just switch to, we're going to charge you for size, they said, we're going to come up with an imaginary stand-in for weight that just happens to take density into it, into account. And they call it dimensional weight. Um, mm. Yeah. So that's kind of how, how they how they started to penalize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess one other thing on the topic of the actual materials I'm curious about is what about the, the cardboard itself? How recyclable, it, recyclable is it actually? Uh, it's actually great. It, it's like the, it's sort of the material that humans have figured out how to recycle really well. Um, but, and this is what we have to say a lot is just because it's way better than plastic doesn't mean it's a miracle uh, and, you know, an amazing get out of jail free uh, material. Like there is a carbon footprint associated with recycling it and with making, you know, new corrugate. So um, it's the best thing we have at the moment, um, but still pretty, uh, pretty emittive. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is a lot of that going to be reducible because of the energy? Like if they can get renewable energy to in the recycling process, will that significantly kind of reduce the, the actual carbon impacts? It could be, but that's, you know, when you think about how this stuff is made, it's, it goes through so many different steps from, you know, Assuming you're starting from scratch, logging, you know, um, yeah. processing the material. There's there's byproducts and all these things. So, um, you know, this is where you know ESG exercises get fairly complicated and maybe too complicated for um, you know people that are kind of casually interested in sustainability initiatives yeah. to to stick with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think it's interesting. I, I think the I, I've seen. Maybe you can comment on this. Are there any novel you know, maybe not again, not necessarily scalable yet, but any novel packagings that you've seen. I think I've heard people talking about doing using seaweed to to create packaging. I'm just kind of curious if you've seen anything out there. Um, I definitely follow some of those some of those inventions. I guess where where we kind of um, are most exposed to the things that are uh, produced at scale. So you know, mid to large size retailers. What is reliable and sort of affordable? enough for them to deploy. Um, so we haven't really seen, aside from film material, we haven't seen a whole lot in the way of like greener, um, you know, carton material, for example. 
I know there was a there was a kind of a uh, a wave of interest in maybe doing reusable uh, shipping containers, um, and that's maybe a, more appropriate for some things rather than others, like cold chain or something. But um, yeah, for the moment, it's just cardboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. I I would I've thought about that with you know when I when I got my um when I moved into my new apartment, I bought the I tried to buy the most sustainable that I could find kind of containers for packaging things. But then I, you sometimes think about it. But if you use these, you know, how how long will they actually last? Is it worth the weight cost, especially when you're shipping that many things, right? It really, really can add up significantly. Um, you you talked about this a little bit with the sh the changing kind of landscape in the you know companies like FedEx and and UPS kind of changing the incentives. I was curious to hear more about the incentives that you think could be done to help improve this space more? Are there other areas where there's a lot of improvement still there and, and available? Yeah, I think, you know, so we, we think about this problem very myopically almost, because we're looking at cartons, we're looking at everything that affects the packing decision. So it's not just making smaller ones, it's making, you know, choosing the right boxes for what kind of vehicle your shipment's gonna go on. Um, but even, even with that in mind, we're still kind of looking at this one part of supply chain. Um, we, we like to call it, you know, the atomic level, cause it's like the individual kind of pieces that are moving through it. But the other kind of most, at least in my view, the other kind of most important piece of, um, e-commerce fulfillment, but supply chain in general is the way that these things are moved around, uh, in general, um, so more, you know, we see a lot of innovation in the micro fulfillment side, um, um, you know, last mile becoming a little bit closer to home, um, just things that make it so that these packages don't have to go as far and tax as much of the transport network as they do today. That's kind of the other half of, I don't know if you've, if you've heard the term, the physical internet, but it's kind of a concept of. If we can move supply chain to act more like the internet does with, you know, links and nodes and shared resources, um, that's really, in my view, kind of the future of of supply chain when it comes to sustainability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I also feel like it's difficult because there's such a, in order to do that, there might be some sacrifices on time, right? And I think that people have become so used to two day shipping that they, I mean, at least I do, especially like, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like you can't get this to me in two days. This is crazy. When, you know, 10 years ago, that would have been insane to think that in the first place. Right. But um, I do see some of those initiatives, like with Amazon mentioning, uh, Hey, you know, choose your, your Amazon day. So that way you're, you're shipping fewer things and it's coming together. Um, do you see that consumers are, I guess, getting to a point where they think they'd be more willing to to wait in order to have a more sustainable supply chain? I think it really depends on what you're ordering. Um, you know, when I order a toothbrush from Amazon, it's because I need to brush my teeth uh, yeah. sooner rather than later. Um, if I'm ordering, you know, something maybe from another merchant and it's just, you know, something special that I want, um, I will choose a slower shipping option. And I think, you know, retailers that make it clear at checkout that like, you know, wait an extra day and you'll save a plane flight, <laughs> you know, over time yeah. or something like that. Uh, I, I would like to see even more retailers doing that because I don't think um, some consumers are, are onto it, but I don't think most consumers know that shipping slower is probably the most impactful thing uh, you could do as a consumer. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm definitely gonna have to clip that. That's a that's a good that's a good point. W one thing we were talking about with the the shipping companies uh, around things that they're doing to incentivize the actual uh, kind of product creators. Are there any potential regulations that you see coming down the pipeline, or is it relatively just self regulated that you see kind of coming coming in the future here? Oh yeah, uh, big time. Um, so right now. Um, FedEx and UPS and others are concerned about scope, you know, one and two emissions. So they, you know, they have an incentive as public companies to make those numbers as small as possible, which is why you see, you know, trials and deployments of electric vehicles and, um, you know, programs to help their customers become more green, et cetera, et cetera. But there is law in the EU about scope three emissions. 
um, which as you likely know, are the emissions that you kind of cause outside your four walls. That is coming here. Um, it faces some hurdles of, you know, lawsuits from big industry and all that stuff, but it's going to happen because it's really the only way that we can kind of collectively get together on, on emissions in general is to have scope three be uh, regulated. And so once that happens, there's going to be this switch where instead of the carriers kind of pushing hard for this sort of space efficiency and their, you know, making sure their capacity is as um, uh, not taxed as possible, you're suddenly going to see all the public companies like retailers being like, uh oh, now, now we have to report these scope three emissions that are from the boxes, the trucks that we're requiring FedEx to use. That is going to uh, hit like a ton of bricks for companies that aren't prepared for it. Interesting. So just to make sure I understood that the, the actual companies shipping, not the companies pr providing the delivery, those are the companies that are going to be most, most impacted. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're, you know, if you're a big retailer um, and you are using 40% more FedEx trucks than you absolutely need to, you're going to have a pretty embarrassing scope three emissions score compared to other retailers that have maybe done a better job. Mm -hmm. and, and out of curiosity, because that's a very complicated thing to do to track these, these items. Do you see a lot of infrastructure being set up to achieve actually tracking that where FedEx is maybe already reporting into the shippers of the products? Hey, you know, here's, here's what's actually going on with your products that we're shipping. And is that already getting pretty well set up and prepared for that tracking? It's going to be fits and starts uh, for sure. So the government is like got proposals out for how to score and keep track of these things. Um, I've been following some startups that um, have come out with these really interesting ESG tools that have kind of calculations built into them. Um, I would say for us, like that is one of the most common reasons we start having a conversation with a retailer because they know there's a problem. Uh, it's sort of a, more of a hunch. They say, you know, our we notice our largest box always has 37 air pillows in it when we ship it. Um, is that does that sound bad? And so we do an analysis and tell them, you know, here's here's the impact of that by the numbers, and here's what you could be doing differently. Um, but but to your question, it's it's really everybody uh, in the supply chain that's going to be on the hook one way or the other for for making this stuff more efficient. Yeah, that's interesting. What about from, this is something that you may not have insight into, but from the actual box makers, right? Let's just talk about cardboard, right? From the people creating these boxes, um, do they already have set up to help kind of track how much emissions is coming from for each box? And are they going deeper into their supply chains, et cetera? Is that something you see already already happening? I do. Um, manufacturers like um, International Paper, um, Georgia Pacific um, are getting pretty serious about this stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm like, I was born kind of a cynic, um, you know, and kind of pessimistic <laughs> about the fate of the earth. Um, but I, I have been, you know, really encouraged by uh, just the way that, you know, these, these folks make decisions about what to be transparent on, um, you know, what they're willing to give up. I mean, we get most of our kind of referrals from uh, packaging providers, including corrugate manufacturers. And they know that if their customers use us, that they're going to be selling less material. Um, mm -hmm. But they say they don't care. Um, and I that's been like kind of the satisfying part of this is actually getting a glimpse into like the actual people at these companies, like they want to do good. Like they want, they want to make, uh, you know, the supply chain less wasteful. Um, so that's been, that's been really kind of a gift for me to, to be encouraged by that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's quite interesting. You would assume that, especially some of these are big, big companies, right? There's probably so many, you know, bureaucratic levels to it where they're, they're all incentivized to sell as much paper as possible. Right. Um, but if they're doing that, that's, that is really encouraging. I, I, thanks for sharing that. That's, that's quite interesting. Um, I think that's a pretty good, well, I, maybe, maybe, maybe one last thing on this kind of point generally on the shipping side is, do you have rough data that you can, you've 
got been able to scrape together on actually how many, how much carbon emissions can be saved. You know, say for example, if, um, if, if maximum efficiency was achieved and how many trucks you could reduce actually shipping, like what, what's the carbon kind of impact in a, in a good way? So we're working with um, academics to try to figure out the supply chain side of it. So if I, re- if I eliminate 400 trucks a year, um, and these are these are the trucks that pull up to my warehouse that I load with all these packed packages, and then they go off to a, a hub somewhere to to go to their final destination. Um, that's a very complicated kind of uh, yeah. project. Um, so while we're working on that, we kind of more f- are fixated on the easy math, like I said at the top about material, because you know manufacture material manufacture, especially for this stuff. Um, it's pretty well documented. So we can, if somebody comes in and say, it says, all right, what if, what if maybe it's not even a packing kind of exercise. They say, what if my flagship widget that I sell on my website were a quarter of an inch shorter? How would that affect the size of my cartons and my impact, my material usage over the next year, you know, five years, whatever. Um, so that's the, I mean, you talked about being sucked into the, the, uh, you know, the, the parcel pricing stuff. This is the kind of thing that just turns you into a huge nerd once you spend more than five minutes on it. No, I mean, honestly, it is very fun. I remember getting into it because I was like, oh man, if I did this and this, and you know, if I make sure that I ask the manufacturer to do this little tiny thing differently, it would be so much better. Yeah. And it, it it is a lot of fun. I think it might stem from uh, growing up, I worked in my dad's cabinet shop and he, he knew exactly how big every, you know, piece of plywood was. So he would somehow in a lot of ways design his cabinet so that he could have literally sawdust left when he was making out mm-hmm. the, you know, the cut sheets. Right. So I think there it maybe stems from that idea of taking everything into account. Um, but that's, is, this is really helpful. I think this is very interesting. Obviously a lot of impact can be made here. Let's um let's talk a little bit more about building the business now. So sure. can you talk to us about so it sounded like if I'm, if I'm got that correct, that your co-founder kind of had this idea for a way to, to quantify this, but could you just talk us through the whole process of coming up with the actual technology itself and maybe walk us through the early days of getting started? Would be really keen to understand your mindset around going from consulting to building a real company and uh, doing these things actually, because kind of really curious about that the whole process sure. and, and journey. So my co-founder and I went to high school together. So we've known each other many, many years um, we had attempted some startups uh, right after college um, that kind of flamed out spectacularly. Um, and so after that, we we're like, all right, let's just go, you know, use our skills. And so we freelanced and we eventually kind of uh, acquired this reputation for doing difficult. Well, maybe not difficult. We we would always get really annoying projects, like projects that nobody else wanted to deal with. So like uh, shipping software companies would come to us if there was a tough integration that required all these moving pieces. And anyway, so we did that a few for a few years and um, we just got kind of burnt out on putting out other people's fires. And so, you know, when the, when our clients, the shippers, the brands started coming to us with this problem, um, we kind of jumped at it because it was really the first time that we heard it from multiple sides of the, how do I deal with this? Um, and so in the beginning, it was just Pat and I, um, you know, I was, I think I made the first version of the technology and it was terrible. It barely worked. Uh, and then Pat went away and said, let me, let me noodle on this for a while. Um, and we eventually developed what we were able to patent, which was a whole new method for uh, solving this problem. Instead of just trying to make smaller boxes, um, it's more of kind of a cost reconciliation exercise. Um, so in milliseconds, uh, you know, at the at the pack station, we take labor costs, material costs, and waste, and you know, carrier rate tables, and those all get kind of reconciled together, and then a packing decision is made. Um, yeah. So the actual underlying tech is pretty mature. Um, I mentioned Crate and Barrel. There's a bunch of kind of retailers like that using it for just because of that method we came up with. Um, a few months ago, we released our first kind of platform application. That's more of a, a simulation tool. Um, so it can, you can introduce variables and it'll simulate all of your packing and shipping and let you kind of answer questions about, you know, 
uh, other kind of projects that you might have going on at the company. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the the evolution of of things uh, up till today. Mm-hmm. So just to clarify, then, so the the technology this is essentially a software that these companies can use on their own. You don't they don't require you know an external consultant to come in and help them. Maybe with setup and understanding it, but overall, it's something that can integrate into their existing workforce. Yeah, I mean, it's a stateless API, so you know they don't have to configure it. You know, configure anything on our side. They just call our API endpoint, usually from their warehouse management system that already has all the information we need. Um, and we send back packing instructions that has a little 3D picture of, you know, which boxes to choose and how to pack them. And that usually gets thrown up at a, on a screen uh, at a pack station or used to drive uh, box making machinery automatically. Mm-hmm. And so how do you... I guess my question would be how, how do you take the data that you under, that you know about the shippers knowing trying to help kind of condense what they need to to do and how big their their products are and then act as a kind of a go between between the actual package makers and even perhaps going back again to the manufacturers right maybe there's an existing box that's already there obviously i'm assuming boxes are easier to to make than a new product right so is there any way that you're enabling these companies to kind of talk to each other to ensure there's a a better fit coming together along the way yeah well i I think this kind of speaks to what i was talking about with being optimistic by you know with how packaging distributors and manufacturers are thinking about the future of their business where they don't look at us as a threat because you know they know that we are the of the three R's, we're the reduce mostly. We're the, mm-hmm. the reduce step, um, and they see this as being kind of maybe inevitable in some ways of just making things a lot more efficient. So they're selling less material, but they want to be on that same journey with their customers. Um, at least the you know the smart ones do. They don't want to be kind of left behind as this legacy kind of bloated vendor. Um, so I think that that's, that has a lot to do with it. So, so in many cases, are they already working together to say, hey, here's a new product we have. We want a specialized box for it. Or is it oftentimes like kind of off the shelf type of thing? Yeah, most most of the time they already have uh, some sort of relationship with a materials provider. Um, we do get the question a lot, especially with this new tool that we released, uh, which we call Pack Simulate. Um, they ask us, OK, we want greener materials. Can you just can you just tell us which company we should talk to about getting this done in an affordable way? Um, so that, that was kind of an interesting adjustment too, is going from being so like focused on the math. Um, and then suddenly now people are asking our opinion on, you know, other vendors and and companies and stuff. So um, that's, that's how, you know, you've been working on a problem for a long time. Yeah, that, that is interesting. I've experienced that a little bit with recruitment. What I'm curious about on that topic is how do you determine, because I mean, I'm assuming there's a lot of data that you could collect and, and are able to start, start feeding to different individuals or, or organizations, but how do you decide what to focus on and what, like, what data should you collect? What's valuable? Because I'm assuming there's people who want more than just anecdotal information from you saying, well, here's what we usually see. They might want a report or something like that. Is this is this something you face? And then how do you dis- determine like what, what should you focus on? Yeah. Um, so there's the data that we need in order for our products to work. Um, so good dimensional data um, and usually some good data about costs, very, you know, disparate costs that are associated with fulfillment. Um, and then on the other side, on the output output side, after we do either a packing instruction on for one shipment or a big simulation with kind of a you know, meta-analysis result. Um, That latter kind of result where we're highlighting certain data points, that's kind of a mix of us being reactive to what our customers are looking for when they reach out to us. But it's also, we try to take it as a point to educate people on what we think matters. Um, So, you know, like I mentioned acres of cardboard, that's always like a crazy, just crazy that we're using that unit of measurement for these Mm, companies. It's not like, you know, it's not square feet, it's acres. Um, And that usually gets a kind of a slack jaw response. Um, And maybe that speaks to not just that we're calling out certain important KPIs, the way you tell the story um, so that, 
they can really understand, uh, you know, on a, on an emotional level, what you're talking about. That's been a really important uh, journey for us as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I can imagine that um, this is something I've, I've encountered is that folks who are able to kind of fuse really technical things in good storytelling or more like kind of the, the soft skills that go along can be very, very valuable. Um, What have, I don't know, maybe what have some of the biggest challenges been, or I guess just generally speaking advice to other, other people, other founders in this kind of space within the sustainability realm from, from your experience building the company? Yeah, I think, you know, in some ways we got lucky because we are solving a problem where sustainability and cost savings are the same thing. Um, you know, I've watched <clears throat> sustainability entrepreneurs, you know, do very well, but there's a lot of friction when there's a much higher cost associated with their greener option that they're uh, selling and bringing to the market. Um, I think there are a lot of other parts of, you know, not just supply chain, but business in general, where if you can just make sure those two things, you know, it being it making your your cost lower and making your emissions fewer, um, if you can find problems like that to solve where they have two of those things, you will find uh, momentum is the the wind is is in you know is with you. It's in your sails. Um, so that would be my my recommendation. Um, and I, I you know. There's just a lot of opportunity to to make stuff that that fits that profile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I think again, I'm not not totally certain, but I would assume that there's been folks out there who focus on green products maybe because they and they can make the model work because of a green premium. But that that is true. That it seems that anybody who's been on the show who their company is doing well, it tends to be that they both align. It's greener and it's more cost efficient. So it's a no brainer, right? There's no, there's literally no reason to, to go anywhere else. Um, what, what was your, I, I don't know if you either raised venture capital or did bootstrap, but could you talk about the process of either, you know, either, or whether you raised capital or how you yeah. managed going through the, the bootstrap process, depending on sure. what the answer is there? Sure. Um, Pat and I had always been bootstrappers. Um, and so when we, you know, even when we had been working on this problem for a little while, we just assumed it would be something that, you know, we would just always have on the side and we would continue to promote and eventually it would grow and become a nice, you know, recurring revenue uh, service to provide. Um, <clears throat> during the pandemic, when we got, you know, a ton of, um, you know, new customers, it suddenly was, you know, the two of us were not enough to support it anymore. And we kind of realized that the, you know, we needed funding to, you know, uh, sustain it. And, uh, in order to take things to the next level, because we really believed there was a lot we could build around this kind of core capability that we'd come up with. So in February, so about a year ago, we raised a seed round of venture capital. Um, and that was amazing. I mean, it was hard in the beginning because it was the first time we'd done it. Um, but it was it was pretty amazing. Um, and then, yeah, so we 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 added a bunch of engineers and a few sales guys and um, it's been really fun. What, what was the biggest thing you learned throughout that process of raising and any advice to other founders going through the process of kind of going from, again, a business that in this case was already revenue generating to then going through that process and, and talking to investors, any, any advice or tips you think, things you learned? Yeah, I think um, it's really hard to say like, <clears throat> excuse me, it's really hard to say, you know, just believe in yourself um, without sounding cheesy. Uh, but if you go to raise and you've never done it before, you're going to hear the word no uh, quite a lot. Um, the good thing that I found uh, during the process is that a lot of these funds, even if they said no, they would say, you know, do you want some feedback or is there anything I can do to help? Or why don't you talk to this other fund? You might be more in their wheelhouse. Um, so once you get those first few conversations going, at least for me, um, it made it like the momentum kept like picking up and picking up. And then finally, all of a sudden, before I knew it, uh, we had a, a round closed. Um, so I would suggest not waiting <laughs> to, uh, to do it. Just 
go do it. Even if, you know, even if nothing happens in the end of it, it is um, an incredible educational experience. And I think you'd find that a lot of these VC guys and, and, you know, men and women are incredibly generous with their time. Uh, We had, you know, funds that passed because we didn't fit some, you know, part of their thesis. And then I reached back out to them and they, and they spent more time with me, helping me with my deck and stuff. Um, so that's kind of a, maybe mm. a touchy feely take on, on the process, but I thought right. it was, it was great. No, that's good. That's good to hear that, uh, you know, VCs have hearts too, right? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of people give them a bad rep, I think, but I think, especially in this space, I, I think there's a good alignment, right? People are trying, they're investing in companies that need to change the world if they're going to make money. So, you know, they're, they're interested in making sure these companies succeed. I think it can be also tough. I've, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs who we try to make intros for and some of them get really like really upset about getting rejected was like hey you know listen they do have remits right they have a specific remit they you might be outside the remit so it's just about searching for that alignment um absolutely what what is your take on partnerships you talked a little bit about it before i think with the actual package manufacturers but could you talk about how partnerships have played a role in the growth of the company and, and how you look at that Yeah. So actually when Pat and I started, we didn't want to talk to customers at all. So the way we (laughs) built the technology was the hope that other software providers like warehouse management system, shipping system, pack station software, they would just take our API and plug it into their software and, you know, make it more contextually relevant for their uh, customers. And we would just focus on the hard math. Um, That didn't end up playing out for multiple reasons. I mean, a lot of these retailers just wanted to have the direct relationship with us, but also a lot of the early partnerships, they they didn't know how to sell it or, you know, the sales guys didn't want to complicate a deal that they were working on by introducing this technology they didn't understand. So, and a lot of it was my, you know, our fault for not um, doing a better job supporting them and educating them and showing them how it could help their sale and all these things. So there's definitely a lot of lessons learned on partnerships um, in the early days. Um, I would say lately, I mean, the the partnerships we have now are much more exciting and they have much more to do with an alignment at the point of implementation. So actually uh, last week, uh, we announced a partnership with a company called Cubiscan, which is one of the, basically one of the most advanced companies that makes these dimensioning machines. So you put a stuffed bunny or a, you know, whatever cell phone or something on the table, you move the scanner over and it takes perfect dimensions. And, you know, it's got all this other metadata and stuff. Anyway, you could imagine how that would be like a perfect alignment. So that's the kind of partnership that I get excited about now, um, where it's less about like us not wanting to, it's like, us leaning on other people to sell our stuff. It's more like, no, where's the, where's the kind of the, the, the nice dovetail. That's, that's really the, at the heart of a lot of our recent partnerships. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I think that's quite fascinating. What you talked about the salespeople not wanting to complicate the sale. Cause I think that there is a lot of channel sales that can go on, but again, like being in sales, having, having been in sales myself, I think it's very understandable to, to know that it can be difficult especially if it's a new product, because you, you usually sell things that you're familiar with right. and they need to be highly familiar with it, but they're not going to be unless they start selling it. Right. right. <laughs> so I think it's a, that's a challenging one. That's a challenging one for sure. Um, what about talent acquisition for you? Like what, what do you, I'm assuming you have some specific need for a highly technical talent, but what has it been like? Do you find a lot of people quite interested in your technology because it is kind of sustainability focused, especially with the layoffs recently, or do you see, a lot of people be like, uh, I don't know. That doesn't seem that sexy. I'm not sure I want to work on it. Like what, what have you been seeing? Yeah. So we went, you know, kind of did our hiring spree right after the seed round. Um, and I don't know if it was luck, but we, everybody we hired was our first choice for the role that they got. Um, and you know, we, we try not to be too self-conscious about the fact that we're just like, putting stuff in boxes well. <laughs> like if, if I have to explain what I do at like a party or something, it kind of comes down to that. And people's people are just like, okay, uh, fine. <laughs> um, but you know, that's another reason why like culturally everybody on my team is so gung-ho about sustainability, because that's what we focused on during the hiring process. 
we would just say, here's what we're, you know, here's what we've done for these customers. Here's the total potential if every package in the world were to be shipped with accurate uh, technology behind it. And um, yeah, that's really, I think that really, a lot of folks came from from companies where they were doing great, but they wanted to have a some sort of professional legacy that had a sustainability impact. And that's what we're able to offer right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of people who, you know, they want to make a true impact. Like you said, people, even, even people at the manufacturing level want to make an impact. Um, they may just not know how to do that yet, I think. And uh, giving people an opportunity, especially in a space, you know, conventional, probably considered at least at one point, relatively conventional, um, the shipping and logistics space, but there's so much room for innovation. Uh, and then you can add the sustainability lens to it. I think it's quite fascinating to see. And obviously the culture aspects is big, right? If you can, if you can attract those people and, and they're top-notch people, then you'll be able to hopefully kind of pull from their networks as well as you continue to grow. Um, I guess just final things to kind of wrap things up here. What is your outlook on the future of this space in general? Do you see any kind of things that to you, you think they're very obvious that they're going to be changing in the coming years, but maybe not to most people, they're not obvious. So maybe just talk about your, your outlook on the future a little bit. Like I kept saying, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic. Um, I think, you know, part of it is, I don't think pessimism is useful. Um, and I have children now and, you know, I, I want to be working on uh, making the future better. So I think optimism is uh, a good, uh, you know, not just for your mental health, but it's a good tool for any entrepreneur who wants to get something done because um, the alternative can be, you know, curling into a ball in despair. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in terms of the industry, um, I just think, you know, my whole world's supply chain, so I can mostly speak to that. But I think that things that were taken for granted before are suddenly being revisited. And we're, you know, we're part of that wave. Like, you know, 10 years ago, everybody was like, all right, I'm putting stuff in boxes. These boxes I get as cheap as I can and we get them out the door as fast as possible. Um, There's just like a million problems like that where, you know, we're not just looking for shiny robots and things that are flashy and headline making. Like, no, we're, we're getting back to basics. We're looking at everything from the ground up. Um, so I think it's a great, it's a great time to be, you know, an entrepreneur working on, you know, business problems like that. Yeah. I do find it really interesting because there's so many things that have to be reinvented, right? There's, there's an opportunity for, for so many people. And I think in particular for those seeking to, to make an impact, there's probably, I mean, not probably there's, there's a lot of people in the conventional space who have the, you know, 20, 30 years of knowledge, even, even not that much working in this space who know the problems, they know the intricacies. If they're open to it, they can probably be the best people to, you know, positioned to, to change them and make them more sustainable. So I think it's really fascinating, honestly. I I say this to my, my co-founder quite a bit, but like, we are experts, um, and I can say that because it's not hard to be an expert of an extremely niche problem if yeah. you if you work on it for long enough. So um, if you can find your niche, you can become an expert in a very short amount of time. Um, so I highly recommend that as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Got to be looking for looking for the opportunity. So very good. Well, this is great. Uh, I really, again, I really enjoyed this. I kind of, as I mentioned at the beginning, have a little bit of a, a nerd in me that likes to, to talk about these like nuanced items, any final things on the, like where people can reach you, anything's coming up, like promotion for anything you want to promo, et cetera. Yeah. You can find me uh, on LinkedIn. I'm usually there writing about putting things in boxes. If that's something that is remotely interesting to you. Um, uh, happy to chat about sustainability as well. Um, or packurate.io. Um, if there's, you know, tech, I know there's technical folks in your audience. You can actually just start, um, playing with our API for free. Um, so you can go there and uh, get an API key and build some cool stuff. We It gets used a lot in hackathons to make like some really weird and interesting uh, things because it's basically a quick 3D kind of simulation tool. Um, so go go check it out. Very good. I appreciate this. I think you should you should consider, 
um, building your your brand. I don't know if you follow the My First Million podcast at all, but they I they've do. talked about the you know the uh, the the guy mafia. And if you know, you should you should become the sustainable packaging guy on <laughs> on Twitter. I think that'd be great. I definitely would follow you <laughs> okay. for sure, man. But uh, this has been great. I really enjoyed you coming on the show and and looking forward to seeing what you guys continue to do. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, thanks for listening to today's episode with James. If you enjoyed this, please share it with somebody and leave a review. It really helps us grow the show. And definitely reach out and connect with James to learn more about what they're doing. If this is your first time as well, please do subscribe and tap the bell for notifications. And in particular, if you made it this far, please go and subscribe on YouTube. It's very, very helpful for us. All right, next episode, quick, quick note for our next episode. This is gonna be a really fun one. So we're joined by Sean Su from Lower Carbon Capital. Uh, and for those unaware, Lower Carbon Capital is the second venture firm from Silicon Silicon Valley um, legend, Chris Saka, who originally founded Lower Case Capital. So I don't know if anybody's familiar with that story. If you're new to venture, uh, Chris Saka is basically a legend in the space. He's even been on, uh, on Shark Tank. Really, really, really cool guy. And Sean has a really crazy cool background in general. Um, he started his early career with Square, helping them expand globally and then eventually went on to work under Mike Maples at Floodgate. And that was obviously Mike Maples is also a kind of a, a legend in the space as well. And then he made his entry into climate and is now at Lower Carbon Capital. In this episode, he shared a ton of incredible advice and insights from the perspective of a climate tech investor and, and you know how he also is spending a lot of time as chief of staff supporting their myriad of, of portfolio companies. They have a lot of portfolio companies. If you look on their website, I was like scrolling. It felt like for days, but there's so many really cool companies on there. Uh, so just any, anyways, really, really great episode. Really enjoyed this one with Sean. I hope you enjoy this one coming up as well. So thanks again for tuning into the Clean Techies podcast and we'll see you next time.